0: John Goldsworthy, a notable englishman by frank harris this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by avai in march 2020 john goldsworthy a notable englishman john goldsworthy began his literary work at about 30 by writing a novel In the next ten years he had produced three or four. I looked through one of them, but didn't think much of it. The feeling in it was not profound, and the style meagre tame. In 1906, when he was forty, The Man of Property appeared, and about the same time a play of his, The Silver Box, made a sort of hit. I read The Man of Property, but it did not change my opinion materially, though it showed development. Goldsworthy had taken the next step and now used an economy of means that betokened a mastery of his instrument. There was a good deal of talk about him at this time, and I gathered that he was a Devon man, belonged to the so-called upper-middle class, and was fairly well-to-do. Suddenly, in 1910, I think it was, his play Justice struck the nerves and drew the town. The piece was well constructed, that we had expected, and at the same time the morality of our justice was put on trial and our legal punishment shown to be tragic. With justice, Goldsworthy came into the first rank of contemporaries, was now someone to know and watch. I was not much in London at the time, and we didn't meet. The other day I heard that he was to lecture in the afternoon at the Aeolian Hall, New York, and I went. The hall was more than half full, an excellent audience. Goldsworthy came to the platform in ordinary walking clothes, went over to the reading desk, smoothed out his manuscript, and began half to recite, half to read his lecture. He is about medium height, spare of habit, and vigorous— his head long, well-shaped, his features fairly regular, a straight nose, high forehead, he is almost completely bald and wears glasses. His voice is very pleasant, clear and strong enough, he uses it without much modulation, gets his effects rather by pauses than by emphasis, has every peculiarity of the writer and not the speaker." his essay dealt with the various elements of formative force in our civilization it was interspersed cleverly with stories not invented by the speaker and i caught myself saying again and again half in approval how english he is and how pleasant then it struck me that if I could give Americans this mental piece of Goldsworthy as an Englishman of the best class and an excellent specimen to boot, it might be interesting. Do some good. At any rate, the portrait would be worth doing. Accordingly, at the end of the first hour, I began to note what he said. Or was it that about this time he began to say things that interested me? He spoke of Bolshevism at some length and very sensibly, with infinitely more understanding, of course, than Senators Overman, Walcott and company, though without sympathy. In the evolution of human society, he said, a revolt, and much more a revolution, was in itself a proof of injustice, of wrong done probably to the lowest classes, and of suffering brought upon the workmen and their families unjustly. Clearly, the lessons taught by Carlyle have at length sunk into the English consciousness and tinged all thought. Not a word did Goldsworthy say about outrages, of which we have heard so much from our lawmakers, who are far too busy to restrain lynchings, but a caution against accepting glib statements of the press that were manifestly inaccurate. The press, Mr. Goldsworthy insisted, should be very careful to tell the truth, and the whole truth, or its influence might be evil rather than good. Did he mean to hint that our American papers were more careless of truth than even English papers? I think he did, and as far as the kept press goes, I believe he would have been justified in speaking his mind plainly. But now to return to Bolshevism. It never seemed to occur to mr goldsworthy that the motive power of revolution might not be so much an uprising against injustice and a resistance of wrong as an attempt to realize a great hope a resolve to shatter the framework of society to bits in order to remold it nearer to the heart's desire but if he had known lenin or trotsky or indeed any of the English labour leaders, such as Clines or Thomas or Lansbury, he would have known that there is a new ideal abroad in the world, and the hearts of men are thrilling with a glorious hope of ending, or at least of mending, this dreadful competitive society, all organised by and for individual greed, where the many sheep are the prey of the few wolves, and injustice is built up to insane lengths by the principle of inheritance. But your well-bred Englishman is always an upholder of the established fact, always prone to find virtue in whatever exists. He would make some man of property, some educated Sancho Panza his hero, and the American, it now appears, would go even further and turn Don Quixote's idealism into comic relief or even confine the noble Don himself in some lunatic asylum or jail. Goldsworthy went on to speak of the League of Nations as another influence for good in our civilization, and here I confess his Anglicism surprised me. He declared very contemptuously that the League of Nations, in his opinion, was a lost dog, save insofar as it was founded on Anglo-American unity. I simply gasped at this way of ensuring a world peace. And his English conception of democracy was just a little one-sided. A democracy, he said, like every other system of government, is there to pick out the best men and give them the greatest amount of power. In fact, a democracy is there simply to affirm the true spirit of aristocracy. It was plain that, in spite of clear-cut phrases and the epigrammatic endings of not a few of his paragraphs, Mr. Goldsworthy was steadily losing his hold of his audience. The most English-loving Americans would hardly agree with this definition of democracy, and perhaps Mr. Goldsworthy felt this, for his peroration was evidently designed as a sop to American feeling. With much earnestness— and Mr. Goldsworthy is able to convey a great sense of seriousness and sincerity in his quiet way, he declared that the most perfect man, the greatest civilizing influence in four centuries, was George Washington, not Owen or Fourier or Marx, not Goethe or Lincoln or Carlyle, no, Washington. And that was the end. A day or two afterwards I had a talk with Goldsworthy in his hotel. Seen close to, his face becomes more interesting, the serious blue eyes can laugh, the lips are large and well cut, promising a good deal of feeling, but the characteristic expression of the face is seriousness and sincerity. I began by praising his insistence that a democracy as a method of government must be judged by its success in producing the best men. "'Still, that is not all the truth, is it?' I queried. "'Surely the sense that the race is an open one and that we all have had a chance in it "'makes defeat easier to bear than when some person is put above us "'simply because he is the son of his father.' "'Mr. Goldsworthy shrugged his shoulders. It seemed immaterial to him. "'Don't you feel,' I went on, that while there is a little greater love of freedom perhaps in England than in America, there is a certain sense of equality here that is unknown and unappreciated in Great Britain? He looked at me as if he hardly understood. I merely mean, I went on that the ordinary man in America is able, if he gets an opportunity, to speak to a governor or a senator or the president and shake hands with him on an equal footing, whereas in England he would find that impossible with any person in authority. In fact, even the distance of Mr. Lloyd George, let us say to Lord Lansdowne, is a very long one indeed. Well, perhaps... Said Goldsworthy, desirous of being fair minded, but unpersuaded. I broke new ground. Your praise of George Washington absolutely took our breath away. A good many Americans think Lincoln a far greater man, and I am afraid I share that view. How on earth did you get the idea of George Washington's greatness? He did such great things, said Goldsworthy and he remained so eminently well-balanced, so sane. I could not help smiling, the English ideal of balance and sanity to be the measuring stick of humanity. I am just reading of Tom Paine, I said, I cannot help thinking him a far bigger man than Washington. Perhaps it would do me good to write a eulogy of Washington, and you a panegyric of Paine. And we laughed. The talk wandered off to Ireland and Egypt and Mesopotamia. Goldsworthy said that an American had told him that the poor people had never been so well off in Mesopotamia as since the English had come there. He thought that the Falachin in Egypt had never been so prosperous as under British rule, but he was too fair-minded and truth-loving to delude himself with the same argument in regard to Ireland. He evidently believed that the failure of British rule in Ireland was an economic failure. He did not attempt to shut his eyes to the fact that the population of Ireland under British rule has shrunk from over eight millions to under four in less than a century. Still, an Irish republic seemed to him extravagant, almost absurd. He wanted to know why the Irish demands have increased, why the Irish wanted home rule thirty years ago while today they want an Irish Republic. I laughed. I might say that it was a result of further experience of British rule, I replied, but I do not think that. I think the difficulty is a little the Egyptian difficulty. Forty or fifty years ago, the priests of Ireland used to be educated on the continent, at Saint Omer in France. Now they are all educated at Maynooth and are merely educated Irish peasants. Formerly they had a cosmopolitan training which inclined them to tolerance of English ways of thought and feeling. Now it is different. They are pure Irish. Again Mr. Goldsworthy's serious eyes brooded. I wonder why you don't agree with my view of a League of Nations, he said, It seems to me so plain that the peace of the world can only be kept by an Anglo-American alliance. What heresy! I cried. I think that such a league would sooner or later provoke a counter-league of Russia and Germany, and perhaps Japan, and result in another world war. I don't believe that Russia, Japan and Germany will ever accept British supremacy of the seas, now that they have found out how vital it is to success in war. Do you think that Russia, with 180 million of people, a country three times the size of the United States, and with almost double the population, will sit down for, say, a century, to come in a position of absolute inferiority to England and America and accept their alien domination? The whole idea to me is insane. Like a great many others, I dreamed of another League of Nations. I believed that Mr. Wilson would call the representatives of Germany and Russia to the peace table, and that he would begin by saying that here there was no conquered and no conqueror, that now the Germans and Russians had got rid of their autocratic governments, the time had come to treat them as friends and equals, and settle everything equally and justly, generously even. Lincoln would have done this. Now Austria is dismembered and starving— Germany maimed and mutilated, Russia attacked north, south, east and west by her own allies while the conquerors squabble and fight over the spoils. The light died out of Goldsworthy's eyes. We must agree to defer, he said dryly. The talk drifted to books and writers, and quite honestly I praised his justice, confessing that I preferred it to the man of property, which seemed to surprise him. ''There is infinitely more feeling in it,'' I said, ''a passionate appeal to a higher justice than is to be found in English law.'' ''What a rebel you are!'' he exclaimed. ''What are you now going to tell us about America?'' ''I know so little,'' he replied. ''I have been here only three months, and I was here before, in 1912. It is so hard to learn anything about it,'' It seems to be without marked features. How can an artist picture it? Yet O. Henry did, I said. Yes, he admitted at once. Yes, very interesting work, his. Very vital. And David Graham Phillips, I went on. Have you read him? No, he replied. No, I think I have read one book of his. It didn't make much impression on me. "'Yet he is almost of Balzac's class,' I ventured. "'Really?' he cried in wonder. "'Really, you surprise me. "'I must read him. "'What are his best books?' "'I'll send some to you,' I replied. "'That would be kind of you,' he said. "'And then, what do you think of Macefield? "'I admire some of his work so much.' "'I think him overrated,' I replied.' just as I think the war poets altogether overestimated. Did you like Nan? he insisted. Not particularly, I replied. Did you meet Macefield when he was in New York? No, I had no wish to meet him. You know, if you hadn't written Justice, I probably shouldn't be here today. I look on Justice as a great play, I put it with Hauptmann's Die Weber. I am grateful to you for it. "'Go on in that vein. "'What are you doing now?' "'Another novel,' he said. "'Ah,' I said, "'I have always thought a new novel meant a new love affair, "'a new passion.' "'Oh, no,' he replied, "'surely one love can furnish forth a good many books.' "'And so we parted almost without meeting. "'To Goldsworthy, democracy is a mere word,' and the League of Nations nothing more than an Anglo-American alliance, and Russian Bolshevism the symptomatic rash of a social disease. To some of us, on the other hand, the Peace Conference has been a heartbreaking disappointment. Democracy has in it the sacred kernel of the Brotherhood of Man, and the Bolshevik Republic is the greatest and most unselfish attempt ever made to bring justice into life. Goldsworthy's Anglicism must not be taken to be the best even in England. He is handicapped by his social advantages. The other day I read a speech of Robert Smiley, the Labour leader of the English miners, who has reached a higher height than any of the so-called educated English. At a recent meeting he said, The German and Austrian people are not to be blamed for the war. All children are our children, whether they live in England, France or Germany. If it was wrong for the Germans to come over here to kill men, women and little babies with their hellish machines of war, was it not also wrong that we should use the power we have to starve the German women and children? The heart of England is not in the educated classes. But Goldsworthy is still growing. His new book, Five Tales, Scribner's, forces me to amend the above judgment which I do gladly. As I have said already, I am not an admirer of his stories. And at first this book struck me like the rest. The first story in it, called The First and the Last, seemed to me a failure. None of the personages in it, except the lawyer-brother, was realized at all, and he not realized deeply. Seventy-five pages that you forget at once. The next story, a stoic, a sort of tale of the city and company promotion, and the inherent thefts of the strong man from the weak, is better done. The atmosphere and surroundings are perfectly caught, the ability of the old commercial buccaneer excellently rendered, the man's love of power and riches, his love, too, of a good dinner and a good drink, All splendidly realized, but the whole thing sordid, grimy, not lifting to the sunlight by any passion or any hope. Two hundred pages of stuff for the intelligence, very little for the heart, nothing for the soul. Almost daunted I began the next story, The Apple Tree, and very soon I became enchanted, lost in a real love story, a love story most beautifully told the atmosphere and surroundings perfectly rendered, a great landscape, the English country in spring magically represented. Spring was a revelation to him this year. In a kind of intoxication he would watch the pink-white buds of some backward peach-tree sprayed up in the sunlight against the deep blue sky, or the trunks and limbs of the few Scotch firs, tawny in violet light. Or again, on the moor, the gale-bent larches in their young green, above the rusty black underboughs. Or he would lie on the banks, gazing at the clusters of dog violets, or up in the dead bracken, fingering the pink, transparent buds of the dewberry, while the cuckoos called and yaffels laughed, or a lark, from very high, dripped its beads of song. It was certainly different from any spring he had ever known, for spring was within him, not without. How fine that is! The lark dripped its beads of song! And the love-story itself, the passion of it and the abandonment more perfectly rendered still. I do not think there are many pages in English of finer quality than this I am going to quote. The only one I remember is in Richard Feverel, and this is worthy to be remembered, beside that most magnificent love-idyl." He caught hold of her hands, but she shrank back, till her passionate little face and loose dark hair were caught among the pink clusters of the apple-blossom, as raised one of her imprisoned hands and put his lips to it. He felt how chivalrous he was, and superior to that clod Joe, just brushing that small rough hand with his mouth. Her shrinking ceased suddenly, she seemed to tremble towards him. A sweet warmth overtook Ashurst from top to toe. This slim maiden, so simple and fine and pretty, was pleased then at the touch of his lips and, yielding to a swift impulse, he put his arms round her, pressed her to him, and kissed her forehead. Then he was frightened. She went so pale, closing her eyes, so that the long dark lashes lay on her pale cheeks. Her hands, too, lay inert at her sides. The touch of her breast sent a quiver through him. Megan, he sighed out, and let her go. In the utter silence a blackbird shouted. Then the girl seized his hand, put it to her cheek, her heart, her lips, kissed it passionately, and fled away among the mossy trunks of the apple trees, till they hid her from him. The dreadful tragedy of preferring a commonplace girl to a lyric love is brought out, it is true, but not realized so successfully. Megan, the little Welsh girl who died of love with beauty printed on her, is simply unforgettable. Just the last words of the story are shocking. It ought to have ended with Ashurst's repeating his wife's ''something's wanting'' by ''yes, something's wanting,'' but the putting his lips solemnly to his wife's forehead should be cut out in another edition. ''We are not interested in the wife,'' There are other stories in the book. I do not remember them. I have read this one half a dozen times already, and it lives with me as part of the furniture of my mind so long as this machine shall last. It is better than justice. It is one of the short stories of the world. Having written this, Goldsworthy may do anything, may yet write a masterpiece, will write one, I'd say, were he not an Englishman. In the realm of the spirit, that to day is a heavy handicap. End of John Goldsworthy, a Notable Englishman, by Frank Harris.